Okay, good morning. It is wonderful to be with you again and to open up God's Word. What a privilege that is to do that uh, week in, week out. And so as we begin our uh, series this summer in the Psalms, for many of us I think the Psalms are a familiar home, aren't they? Uh, we, we all like the Psalms, and even if we don't read much of the Old Testament, we often find ourselves turning towards the Psalms, don't we? They're usually short and easy to read, and they are great sources of you know, spiritual nourishment and a fresh understanding of the Lord's gracious character. So why do you think the Psalms hold such a special place in the Christian's Bible reading? Well, I think maybe uh, one of the reasons is that the Psalms include um, a huge range of emotions, and they, they trace people's experiences of following the Lord, and in doing so, they actually validate people's emotions. The Psalms teach us that it's actually okay to come to God um, angry and disappointed, to come to him celebrating and praising, or passionate and desperate. And they take those emotions and show us that we can do more than that and actually lead those emotions into greater holiness and uh, understand the Lord better. So I think uh, the Psalms are, are, are wonderful uh, things to be reading daily, uh, to be filling ourselves up with. And uh, Athanasius, who was one of the old, early church fathers, recognized this and said the Psalms become like a mirror to the person seeing them, so that he might perceive himself and the emotions of his soul. Under all the circumstances of life, we shall find that these divine songs suit ourselves and meet our own soul's need at every turn. So when Paul asked me to preach on the psalm, he said, uh, you can choose any psalm you like except Psalm 1. And I thought, great, that, thanks Paul, that leaves me a lot of choice. 149 psalms to choose from, that really, really narrows it down. And when you're blessed with the abundance of choice, oftentimes you can go with your favorite psalm or your, or your familiar psalm. And that was my plan. I'd always loved Psalm 34, and I uh, flipped over my Bible to that psalm. And actually the psalm just before, I feel like the Lord led me to. And that's uh, what we're going to be looking at today. So, as Chris read Psalm 33, what's it all about? Psalm 33 is teaching us about worship. It's an exuberant and decorative praise psalm that encourages people to praise the Lord for making all things and for ruling over all things and for saving a people for himself. The psalm is a, is a command, it's a declaration to, that the Lord will be worshipped with great and serious joy because God is chiefly committed himself to, the, to himself and the fulfillment of his, his sovereign, loving, true and perfect good purposes in this world. So Psalm 33 is inviting us to worship God by showing us that God alone is orchestrating every moment with purposeful sovereignty according to the increasing of his glory. We call this providence, and that's our, our key term for the day. And this, I believe, really gets to the heart of what the psalmist is trying to teach us about worship. That even when we don't see the Lord working in his universe, in human history, and the salvation of people's souls from bondage, not one thing happens outside of the Lord's control and outside of his mysterious will and good purposes. So we have this strong connection we'll see running throughout the psalm between God's providence and our response as worship to him. But seeing the Lord working in, uh, in life and in history is sometimes hard, isn't it? Because we can sometimes struggle to recognize where God's hand is working in situations, especially when they're um, broken by sin. But Psalm 33 tells us God always is working. He always is sustaining and controlling all things. 
Many of us enjoy hobbies, don't we? Some of us like to hunt and fish, others like to uh, bake, others like to garden or cook, some like to watch sports or garden, whatever it is, a lot of us have hobbies. And anyone that knows me will soon find out that my favourite hobby is cycling. I love to ride bikes and any sort of bike, you know, it's a road bike or a gravel bike or a fat bike or a mountain bike. I love riding bikes, apart from electric bikes. That's, in my opinion, cheating. That's flat out cheating. But with most hobbies, most hobbies, they come with some frustrations, don't they, sometimes? The hobby isn't always fun. Can you take a guess what the cyclist's worst enemy is? What do you think is the worst thing about cycling? Lots of ideas. It's not cars, it's not potholes, it's not the, the, it's not the rain. Uh, not even the snow, it's not even hills. In fact, if you're, if you're a real cyclist and crazy like me, you like the hills and you try and find, find the hills to ride. Actually, I think if you ask most cyclists what their worst enemy is as a cyclist, they'll say the wind. The wind is the worst thing about cycling. And I'm sure you've all had the experience of you know, going against a brutal headwind and you're pedaling as hard as you possibly can you're putting in so much power, you can probably power a toaster with your legs. But the wind is so strong, you're just going at you know, five miles an hour. We've all had that feeling, it's just the worst feeling, isn't it? But the funny thing about wind is, of course, it's invisible. You can't see it. But of course, you feel its power, don't you? Especially when you're riding a bike. You can know when it's strong because you can see it affecting you and the environment around you. In some ways, uh, the Lord's providence is a bit like that. Sometimes we clearly see the Lord working in situations and we see his force and his, his purposes coming into reality, like when the wind is strong. But other times our perception of the Lord's intervention is less obvious, isn't it? Uh, but just like the wind, God is always undeniably present and still working in his creation. So let me give just a brief outline for this psalm. I think we can break it down fairly easily. The first few verses are a call to praise and to worship God. And the next three sections give us three answers as to, the, to answer the question, why should, deserve, why should God deserve our praise, our worship? Firstly, the psalm is saying, because he is the creator of the whole universe and sustains it constantly by his powerful word. Secondly, he is sovereignly orchestrating all of human history, despite sin and evil and wickedness in this world, Everything is orchestrated by God to come into conformity with his glorious will. And finally, because he alone, with such great love and power, is able to save our souls from death and preserve us as God's chosen people until Jesus' return. And then the psalm ends with an encouragement, of course, to, to have hope in the Lord, to trust in him and to praise him and to be renewed again that um, he is praiseworthy because of all the things he does. So let's pray and we will begin looking through this psalm. Jesus, we thank you again for the opportunity to look at your word and we recognize that it is powerful and speaking and we pray for our hearts to be open and receptive to how you would speak to us today. Uh, may this psalm encourage us to recognize that you are sovereign, you are in control of all things and uh, by your glorious power you love us and uh, working all things for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, I'd love you to open up with me and follow along. Um, beginning in verses 1 to 3, we have an exhortation for God's people to worship the Lord with joy and with thanksgiving. Just as we begin our, our services here on Sunday mornings every week with a, a time of worship through song and music, the psalmist is telling us that we can also worship God 
uh, with instruments and songs, and that these can be a good way of expressing our worship to God. As we already said, I want to suggest that this whole psalm is really unpacking for us um, about worship and telling us what worship is by looking at these selection of reasons why God is deserving of our worship. But let's stop for a minute and think about worship itself. What is worship? How would you answer that question? What is worship? Of course, we all have you know, subconscious connotations of what we think worship is and ideas that come to mind when we think about worship and what makes worship good and pleasing to the Lord. We have specific worship services, don't we? Which uh, coincidentally are often more attended than prayer services. And we have worship leaders. We have a time of worship and then we hear the sermon after in, in Sunday mornings. Worship today in some sections of the church has become just synonymous with the musical um, corporate setting for worship in church. But of course, if we were to think a little bit more seriously, a little bit more carefully about worship, then we know, of course, that it's not just a musical event or an expression of praise. But music can certainly be used as an appropriate vehicle for our worship content, like the psalm is encouraging us to do. Music helps expand our understanding of the Lord's character and working, as well as enabling us to articulate a, a response of praise to God. Do you, do you realize when you sing to God, you learn? When you sing, you develop a theological vocabulary. And song has a wonderful way of teaching those singing and catechizing people with a certain understanding of who God is the more we sing. Therefore, it's obvious that the words we sing matter, don't they? It's important, they must be meaningful, and they must be Trinity-exalting. The longer a, a local church comes together, made up of faithful, Jesus-loving, and God-glorifying people, uh, meet in week, out, week in, week out, and sing to the Trinity, the more reasons they have to praise God, as they begin to gradually understand more of who God is, and how He is working and saving and sanctifying a people for Himself despite the, uh, the doubtful in creation and the sinful shortcomings of us. Now that's worth singing about, isn't it, every day. But we know that actually music can be deceptive too, can't it? It can sometimes be mistaken for God-glorifying worship. Music can invoke emotions and certain affections, which can be good, of course, when they're directed towards God and pleasing to God, but sometimes they just become an end in themselves, don't they? Does a good time of worship need to invoke a certain emotive, emotional response? Do we know then that God has truly been worshipped in our, in our meeting? These questions are perhaps a little bit broader than what the psalm is telling us today in our study for today, but I think Psalm 33 is able to provide at least part of an answer to those questions on what true worship ought to be. Yes, it can be guided by music, of course, but this must never be separated from the Word of God and Christ's Gospel. Worship is a continual adoration of God for all His glorious work in the world, which is manifested plainly both in creation and in history, human history. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book Reflection on the Psalms, says, Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him as well. Worship involves living a life that is inclined towards growing in holiness and praising the, tr the Trinity in spirit and in truth in every segment of our lives, not just what we do here on a Sunday morning. 
So the first three verses establish the, the call to praise, the call to worship God. Verses 4 and 5 begin to give us part of the reason why we should do that, why God is deserving of a praise-filled life. The first reason why God must be worshipped is because of the nature of his word. God's word, it says, is upright. It is faithful and it loves righteousness, justice, and love. His word is life-giving. Whatever God says is perfectly true, perfectly loving and just and beautiful and effective. It is a word that is based on perfect, infinite knowledge and not based on you know, educated guesses. Whatever God says will become reality. Just as God's word has creative abilities to bring all the universe into being, so too does his word always fulfill its purposes. God's word, his, his speaking, is in fact so important that the Gospel of John will say that, describe the speech, this, this voice and word of God, as literally becoming a human man in the person of Jesus. As if we were unsure that God's word was true and, and dependable, the Lord embodied that word, didn't he? He became enfleshed by his speech and presented his creation with the second member of the Trinity, who had now uh, become a man, condescending himself into human flesh and taking on that hypostatic union of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So for his word alone, God deserves our adoration. Because his word is upright, it guarantees that all God does is loving and faithful and just and holy. The word of God that the psalm now says goes on to explain um, has and continues to have a powerful and direct impact on the creation of all the universe and every event and action in human history. So let's move on now to verses 6 to 9. Looking at creation, the Lord's speech, what he said at the very beginning of time was life creating, wasn't it? That's how God chose to bring life into this world. God speaks and things just spring into life by his word. In a society that's, I think, largely become dissatisfied with that answer and that, that simple um, response as to why God made all living things, scientists and academic thinkers have tried to theorize and, and test and postulate uh, different ideas about how the world came into being and the laws of nature that made that all possible. But the Bible has always bared witness to the simple reality that God made everything. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, he made the waters and gathered them up, as the psalm says. All that you see in this world, from the bugs to the elephants, from the rivers to the mountains, from the smallest algae on rocks to the trees in the rainforest, God made those and God sustains them every second. The verses draw attention specifically to the universe and the millions of stars and constellations that God created and to the vast bodies of oceans that God um, is pleased to gather up and control by himself. It's interesting to note that the Psalms is talking about the seas and the oceans because uh, traditionally, historically, Israel were not a seafaring people. They were not sailors. They were not traders on the sea. And actually, they didn't trust the sea. They saw it as a, a wild and chaotic force, and uh, it brought um, unpredictable you know, um, traveling. They went and traveled and traded by land instead. And it's almost as if the Psalms is suggesting that even out of chaos and destruction like the ocean, God brings about control and harmony. He perfectly masters the ocean and thus displays his praiseworthy power in the process. It's likely too that the psalmist is actually also thinking about the, uh, and reminding Israel about when they crossed the Red Sea and the Lord 
parted the waters and he gathers them up in one big heap so that Israel could cross them safely. So if God made all things, then he is the one to attach meaning and identity to his creation. All creation has purpose and meaning, namely, as it says in Romans 1, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are perceived in all of creation as it constantly gives God's glory. And this is even more important for people too, isn't it? The pinnacle of God's creation is its male and female people. And we were designed specifically and created with complementary yet distinct differences as male and female that go together and present us with a beautiful picture of who our creator is. Both men and women were chiefly made to glorify God. And this is the meaning and this is the purpose of our lives. We are alive simply to worship God. The very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is probably pretty well known and famous. It says, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why we exist. That is the purpose of man. The Dutch theologian Herman Barthing stressed the importance of having an understanding of creation that is central in the rest of our theology and our doctrine of God. He called creation the theater of God's glory. It is the starting point in our understanding of God's revelation. We know first and foremost what God is like through the way in which his creation functions. As Barthing says, it is the initial act and foundation of all the divine revelation and therefore the foundation of all religious and ethical life as well. So the biblical doctrine of creation is not a minor side point that we as Christians have in our belief systems about God. Rather, we must have this idea of creation deeply ingrained into us and recognize that God is a creator. He is a maker of all life and that we ourselves and the world within which we exist are all designed with exquisite purpose and design. Therefore, we fall into the category of created beings and we are made to give our glorious um, creator praise and honor because of that. Verses 8 and 9 show us the appropriate response, don't they, um, when he recognizes we are made. God made everything, therefore let all the world fear him. Let all, all of us stand in awe of God, of this God who speaks and life begins. You know, who, who else can do that? Who else is deserving of such holy, fearful adoration like God who speaks and life begins? Now this idea that creation has meaning and, and creation has purpose attached to it by God and therefore has a, a given morality to it and a given obligation by, uh, on people to worship God is very much under attack, I think, in today's culture. In uh, Carl Truman's excellent new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he helpfully outlines two views or two ways of seeing uh, the world and it's helpful for us to recognize as Christians um, how we should view the world. He explains there are two ways of thinking about the world. The first way is the mimetic view, he says, and that is a view that regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning, and thus human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform ourselves to it. And then Poesis, by way of contrast, sees the world so much as just raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual themselves. So put into, into biblical language, either the world is created by God and then with given meaning, which we must conform ourselves to, namely recognizing how creation is always pointing ourselves to God. 
and in, in response we should be worshipping God, all creation is just physical stuff. All that we see is just raw material, and it's just there uh, and, and able for us to impose our own meaning onto creation. And we see that you know, manifest in so many ways, don't we, today? Whether it's New Age you know, spiritualism, or finding people's uh, peace and belonging in nature, or uh, grounding ourselves in the earth, or conquering nature's elements and harnessing its, uh, its potential to enhance our own identity and our own self-esteem. All of these things are just symptomatic of people that have been corrupted by sin, and therefore um, they fail to see creation constantly and magnificently pointing itself to its creator, to the maker of all these things. But that's what happens when God's spirit penetrates your dead soul and resurrects you into new life of Christ. You actually see this world differently. You look up on the beauty of, of nature and the majesty and the complexity of life and animals and all of creation and even people and the joy that that produces invokes you and leads you to worship the Savior, worship the Creator that made all things, rather than just seeing the beauty in itself in creation. It shows you this is made, this is designed with exquisite purpose, and look at God for doing that. Let's move on then to verses 10 and following. Now when we look out at the beauty of creation, uh, whether we look at lakes and the rivers and the mountains and the deserts and the rainforests and the ocean, it's easily um, possible to be drawn to praise to God, isn't it? Because it's so evident, I think, as Christians, that God made those things. God made them beautiful, and he is explaining, he is giving um, a clue and a reason why uh, he is deserving of worship in that creation. But the psalm, however, now goes on to say that the beauty and complexity of human history and society in all of its mess is also under the control and complete sovereignty of the Lord. Both the wickedness of people and nations and the good and flourishing of humans is all attributed to the divine wisdom and power of God that is played out in history. We call this God's providence. And remember this is our kind of key term this, this morning. Providence is recognizing that everything in this world, good, bad, wicked, and holy, is all under the purposeful sovereignty of God. The psalmist is encouraging us to take a big view of God, to recognize that really God is, is vast, beyond our comprehension. It is the biblical view of God that rightly credits God as the one, all-controlling, all-knowing, all-powerful factor in bringing everything to pass. Like when Joseph told his brothers that had been you know, treating him wrongfully and were horrible to him, at the end he says to, says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me but God made it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And in Psalm, uh, Proverbs 21, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Verses 14 and 15 of our psalm says, God sees and fashions every person's heart and the deed, and observes, uh, the deed he observes all that happens. The psalmist is showing us that even the evil and sinful ideas of men and powerful leaders, God either permits or he squashes, but ultimately, within the grand scope of his redemptive history, their plans are frustrated by God. That's what it says, isn't it? And nothing comes to, uh, comes to fruition but that which is according to God's perfect, loving, just, and mysterious will. God allows and controls the presence of sin and evil to continue in this world and uses it for his own unstoppable purposes, 
while still being absolutely innocent and holy of, of the evil that, that sin produces. And Psalm 5, 4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. There is no power that's able to ultimately oppose God truly because all power comes from God. So this is a big picture of God that perhaps breaks down some of the categories you might have about how God works. And uh, without going too much down into a rabbit hole, how can we say God is sovereign over sin's continuation of the world without being guilty of committing sin himself? Easy question, right? Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Freedom of the Will, gave a helpful illustration in understanding how we can say God wills or ordains or permits or allows sin, whatever kind of terminology you're comfortable saying, how he, how he ordains sin whilst not being the producer and the guilty party for sin. He compares it to the sun. If you look out in the sun, up to the sun, you will recognize that there is a big difference, Edward says, between the sun being the cause of light and being the cause of warmth and its, its positive influence in, in life-giving to the things around it, compared with its absence and when, you know, when it's away, it causes cold and darkness and no life is growing when night is here. At night, the lack of sun is the cause of darkness, but the sun itself does not produce that darkness like it does the light. The sun itself is not cold, is it? It's not, uh, it's not cold and its rays are, are black and frosty. But on the, on the contrary, uh, in, the, in the same way, sin is not the positive cause or not the influence of God, but on the contrary, it comes from God withholding his life-giving action and energy under certain circumstances according to his wisdom alone, which gives room for sin to take place. Therefore, it was by God's action that he willfully uh, permitted sin to take place for his just and perfect and good purposes by withholding his action. And in doing so, he is in control of man's sinful workings, but he is not the guilty and responsible uh, person for the penalty of that sin. Does your brain hurt yet? <laughs> so this dynamic, this, this dynamic between God's sovereign preordained will coming to fulfillment and the natural self-determining will and choice of people is a, is a complex and it's an age-old paradox that people have uh, you know, disagreed about forever. Uh, what interests us though in this psalm is how it highlights the notion of God frustrating the plans of the sinner and deliberately intervenes in preventing people from fulfilling their wrong desires that do harm to human godliness and flourishing. Even kings with vast armies, we are told, are not safe from God's prevailing counsel, as it says in verse 16. We know that people who aren't Christians, that is, those who are not you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, are in still one sense capable of doing good things and making good decisions that are beneficial in earthly ways, but ultimately, unbelievers are still acting in continual rebellion, aren't they, to, to God, from their Creator, and in a constant state of, of sin, and they are helpless outside of Christ. Yet despite this, God still gets glory from their sinning, the psalmist suggested. Scripture does not tell us how God directly influences unbelievers, and it still holds them accountable for sin, but countless times throughout Scripture, only to read and see that he does it makes it a bit clearer, I think. 
He does it with pagan pharaohs, kings like Pharaoh, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Cyrus, and Darius, and Artaxerxes. We are told that God rules over these, these powerful leaders and turns the heart of these pagan leaders towards favoring his people and frustrating the plans that they had for harm and destruction of the people. All of scripture is making the case that man's willing and doing are actually not the final and determining factors that to decide what will come to pass in this world. As Romans 9, 15 and 16 says, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. God freely chooses who he will bless with this grace and mercy according to his infinite wisdom. The psalmist was specifically writing about Israel, wasn't he, at this time? They were God's chosen inheritance, and they were God's people, and he consistently defended those people, the Israelites, by destroying the plans of the other nations that sought them harm. Just as verse 5 says that the earth is full of the love of the Lord, which can be seen in his providence over creation, so too is his love now made plain in his providence in protecting this nation and allowing this nation to, to recognize that God's plans and God's purposes are what they will follow rather than their own. And this is still relevant for us too today, because from Israel one day, a son of David uh, from the you know, Davidic kingly line would come, and this son of David, whose kingdom and reign would come and endure forever, would encompass all the nations. And of course we recognize that as Jesus, didn't we? Jesus came as the King of Kings, and he is the head of the church, which now welcomes people from all nations, who by faith are granted entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. So the pervasive providence of God over history is not limited by human willing, but that our willing in a, in a mysterious way beyond our, our real comprehension is encompassed within that providence of God. And it allows God to always achieve his plans for creation. And to make this a bit more, a bit more relevant for us, this is of indescribable comfort to us, I think, as Christians, to know that the king of the universe is in control of everything. God has a specific and definite purpose to everything that happens in this world which remains hidden in his good and loving purpose and will.